Shalom, shalom, friends. That's a German melody, um, a German melody to Mavatshe Fanecha, Yaakov Sela, um, that I learned in Israel uh, 20 years ago. It goes on really deep for like half hour, but that's just a, a 10 second flavor of it. Anyways, wonderful uh, to, to be with you all today and excited to jump into Voltaire. Now we get radical. Now we get radical Voltaire. You might have thought we were kind of, uh, you know, going the boring route with philosophers. <laughs> Let's see, is that a mistake there? Yeah, you're right. 1778. Yes. I don't know how uh, we got that there. That's, that must be an error in my notes. In any case, friends, let's start with a poll question here. On protest, we should never be a silent bystander, and we should protest every injustice wherever it is. Option one. Option two, we should just focus on our local wrongs. We can't accomplish much far away. Option three, better to just change ourselves. We can't change the world. Okay, let's see our results here. Okay, wow, wow. We should never be a, by, a silent bystander, and we should protest every injustice wherever it is. Wow, that's a high bar. 67% are on board for uh, protesting every wrong. 11% say we should just focus on local wrongs. We can't accomplish much that's far away. And 22% say better just to change ourselves. We can't change the world. Okay, friends, very interesting. Theories on... How do we relate to ourselves and to our broader world? Voltaire is going to help us go there and many other directions as well. Does God intervene in the world? Can we actually change the world for the better? Do we have any source of unimpeachable knowledge? Born as Francois-Marie Arrault, Voltaire was a standout figure of the 18th century French Enlightenment, known for being highly critical of both religion, Christianity in particular, and the Catholic Church, um, and uh, critical of slavery, as well as a major advocate for freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and separation of church and state. This was a big polemical figure. He had a lot of criticisms to make and did not seem to be too afraid of making them. He uses a lot of wit and humor as well in his critiques of the establishments. He was born in Paris. He's born in Paris. And in his younger years, he studied law before coming to prefer writing, which made Voltaire famous for his literary wit. However, his satires got him into lots of trouble, and he was imprisoned multiple times and ultimately exiled from France. After this initial fleeing, Voltaire stayed in England, where he was influenced by English philosophy and science. <laughs> he eventually made his home elsewhere in France, in Chateau de Cire, with his partner, the philosopher uh, Emily du Ch uh, Chatelet. Incredibly prolific, Voltaire wrote in numerous different formats, including poems, novels, and plays. His most famous work, though, 
is a novella called Candide, which is full of ridicule, ridicule of prominent thinkers and ideas, as well as being the venue where he'd wage his war against slavery, ideologically at least. Voltaire was bold and often bordered on offensive, saying what he thought even when it was avant-garde or would be seen as provocative. He is the originator, he's the, uh, the originator of the saying translated, truly whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. My gosh, the amount of times I've wanted to quote that in the last five years. <laughs> whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Voltaire was an advocate for religious pluralism, and personally, he was a deist. You might wonder what a deist is. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy explains deism and its centrality during the Enlightenment. Deism is the form of religion most associated with the Enlightenment. According to deism, we can know by the natural light of reason that the universe is created and governed by a supreme intelligence. However, although the supreme being has a plan for creation from the beginning, the being does not interfere with creation. The deist typically rejects miracles and reliance on spiritual revelation as a source of religious doctrine and belief in favor of the natural light of reason. Okay, so to, just to sum that up, basically someone says, okay, there's probably someone or something out there. They probably created this world as we know it, but they're certainly not interacting with the world. They're certainly not doing miracles. They certainly never revealed the word of God to people in scriptures or the like. That's what you call a deist. And that grew in enlightenment because it, it places reason primary over revelation or over divine uh, intervention. And so Voltaire believes in, in a creator, but not one who supernaturally intervenes in the world or in history. This made him a major critic of all religions, not just the dominant Christianity, as he wanted to remove from society all of what he believed to be superstition. He thinks superstition is harmful to all of us. And still, Voltaire argued for tolerance toward all sides, right? He wants to reject these religions. He wants to critique them and all the superstitions involved, but he also wants tolerance for them. Though it's not an exact quote, the historian Evelyn Beatrice Hall paraphrased Voltaire's position on free expression as, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Right? Um, that, um, you know, one one kind of bad explanation of pluralism I once I heard, um, I won't say, say it of who, by who, but he said, pluralism is my acceptance for your right to be wrong. Um, essentially meaning I'm right, you're wrong, but I accept your right to be wrong, <laughs> as opposed to a more common understanding of pluralism, which says there's probably some truth in your view, too. Um, in any case, um, this is an interesting articulation or, or, or summary of Voltaire's view here. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. For Voltaire, the government needs to be limited and speech needs to be free. Taking his work seriously, he measured the value of a philosophy, not just by its logical soundness, but also by whether it could incite practical, social, and political change. For Voltaire, this meant eradicating the hope as a response to societal problems. For him, hope was a disease that prevented human beings from taking responsibility for their circumstances. 
He was skeptical that enlightenment advancements in science could solve most of our problems and could even be usurped by tyrants, right? Science sounds great, right? Well, if really great people are in control of it, and if really evil people are in control of science, we ought to be very afraid. However, he did emphasize that each person must try their best to better their little corner of the world, right? So he is skeptical of what people will do with their power and skeptical of many social change efforts and, and what we call progress or advancements. And yet he does think we need to do something in our own corner. In his novella, Candide, the title character says to a Muslim man, you must have a vast and magnificent estate. The man answers, I have only 20 acres. I and my children cultivate them. And our labor preserves us from three great evils, wariness, vice, and want. Contemplating this, Candide later says, this honest Turk seems to be in a far better place than kings. I also know that we must cultivate our own garden. And that's the quote famously given to Voltaire. We must all cultivate our own garden. However, we understand that to mean, you might think that you've got some cucumbers in your backyard. You might think that means your local city that you need to support. You might think that means your children or grandchildren, but we have to cultivate our own garden. Voltaire thought to be happy and to be productive. We're going to be much happier and our lives more stable, Voltaire believed, if we focus on our own corner and our own life. He advocated for a kind of isolationism. We cannot trust humans and engaging in collective political and social matters will lead only to aggravation and disappointment. Because he did not believe large-scale change to be truly possible, he argued we should just tend to our own garden, right? We should be skeptical of what the establishments will do, but we can do what is in our control. Voltaire held a radical faith in the idea of doubt. He agreed with John Locke that a person is born a tabula rasa, a blank slate that learns all it, no it knows from its surroundings. Doubt also caused him to hold that many of the axiomatic truths of math and logic were in fact little more than mere hypotheses and should not be taken for granted. Voltaire saw that ideas are always shifting in different eras and different cultures. So he thought, why should we believe that our knowledge of math, of math and logic is eternal? With this in mind, Voltaire argued that we cannot grasp logical truth which makes doubt our only reasonable ending place. By the way, um, um, Kuhn is not going to be one of our of our 40 or 50, wherever we land on this. But um, Kuhn, as you probably recall, is famous for his idea of paradigm shifts in science. Um, a prevailing theory was that science evolves gradually. We get a new fact here, a new theory there. Um, and things advance gradually to the point that the outsider might not even know. And Kuhn famously talks about paradigm shifts in science that are sudden and dramatic to the point where um, science is incredibly unreliable. We just know, I mean, people used to think science was the highest truth, you know, in the early stage of enlightenment. But ultimately, we know science is constantly disproven and only a, a generation later, um, we have entirely new theories and understandings of things that we took for granted earlier. So Kuhn wants to suggest that these paradigm shifts um, 
should give us more humility in what we take to be absolute truth in science. Of course, also, we have to operate with the science of our day. How can we not? How can we neglect the science of our day um, or mock it? In any case, Voltaire um, thinks doubt is all we got. So what do we make of Voltaire as Jews, those of us here who are Jews, of, or, or, um, or as 21st century Westerners? Of course, his tolerance for religious minorities is a value we must continue to uphold, even though it must be noted that his writings often singled out Judaism as a religion deserving of criticism. Right? He, criti he certainly critiqued Judaism second to Christianity, uh, you know, among 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 all of them. Um, and um, but um, it was a big chidush, a big insight in that time in that historical time period to argue for tolerance for diversity not a common idea. Even today, um, it's popular and easy to say it. But how many people really hold a deep view of, of at least of tolerance um, that we, you know, that we um, should not foster some kind of um, uh, Christian supremacy or Christian nationalism, ultimately, or, or, or now we see in Israel as well, the far right, who wants a kind of Jewish supremacy. Um, Obviously, there's many Muslim countries that are fundamentalists and want 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 Islamic fun, um, supremacy, um, and so um, it, you know we see this throughout. And then, of course, there's those who want to destroy religion. They're 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 atheistic uh, supremacists. They think that religion should be burnt. However, his extensive emphasis on cynicism runs counter to the Jewish values that spur us to bring change in the world. The idea that each person must simply cultivate their own garden is not entirely immoral or a bad way to live. Uh, but it does not enable us to uphold the Torah commandment, justice, justice shall you pursue, that you may thrive and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Right? It doesn't mean, you know, don't harm and enjoy your tomatoes. It means get out there and get involved. Still, we can value Voltaire's skepticism and commitment to questioning in search of the truth. While we have a duty to do good in the world, the task involves first coming to an understanding of life's absurdity and systemic injustice. As the Hebrew Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you see in a province oppression of the poor and suppression of right and justice, don't wonder at the fact, for one high official is protected by a higher one and both of them by still higher ones. Skepticism is not wholly bad. The difference is that Jews typically see the seeming, seeming insurmountableness of the challenge and choose to fight anyways. We take seriously, seriously what's attributed to Rabbi Tarfon in Pirkei Avot, perhaps the most famously quoted um, uh, Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. If you have studied much Torah, you shall be given much reward. Faithful is your employer to pay you the reward of your labor and know that the grant of reward unto the righteous is in the age to come. The most important part is that first phrase. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you free to neglect it. This first part of his teaching reminds us not to feel guilty if we cannot succeed, succeed in changing the world. In truth, no one can do so alone. And we must learn to accept the fact that the world will most likely remain broken, even when we depart from it. The second part reminds us of the value of faith in fighting off cynicism. Our efforts always matter. 
if not in the here and now, then most certainly in the world to come. The Midrash further emphasizes the point that we must be involved in the world and take responsibility for it. Here's what it says in Tanhuma. If a person of learning participates in public affairs and serves as judge or arbiter, they give stability to the land. But if they sit in their home and say to themselves, what have the affairs of society to do with me? Why should I trouble with myself with the people's voices of protest? Let my soul dwell in peace. If they do this, they overthrow the world. Right? We might have thought the, that the real one overthrowing the world is the world is the force of evil. But the rabbis say, no, the one who sits on their couch and says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is the one who overthrows the world. Lastly, it says in the Talmud, Tractate Shabbat, that it is not sufficient for us to tend only to our little garden and ignore the world around us. If we do not act to protect injustice, to protest injustice, even if we are unsure whether we can correct it, we will ultimately be held responsible for it. Says over here in the Talmud, everyone who can protest the wrongs of their household and do not is responsible for the people of their household. For the wrongs of the people of their city and do not, they are responsible for the people of their city. And for the wrongs of the whole world, they are responsible for the whole world. In Judaism, yes, we can accept doubt of knowledge and of justice, but we must also strive toward a higher divine truth. As Leonard Cohen put it, from the perspective to God, our task is to gather up the brokenness and bring it to me now. The fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. We can accept that as Voltaire says, we can't grasp absolute truth or justice, but we can and must work with what we have. We can therefore reject Voltaire as irresponsible for thinking the logical answer to the world's problems is only doubt and skepticism and tending to oneself. Today, we can imagine a disciple of Voltaire as an opinion columnist who has a tendency to cynically tear, tear things down without necessarily offering anything constructive to replace them. As inheritors of a moral tradition, we need to instead affirm truths that add some moral texture to our lives. However, we can also admire Voltaire's fearlessness in pursuing his convictions, his dedication to freedom, and his ability to see contradictions that most others ignored. Of course, he, like everyone, had his own contradictions. And so, Voltaire sets important foundations for us of pluralism and skepticism, but that is not sufficient on its own for us to live our fullest lives. Okay, friends, here's some thoughts on anything that has been stimulated for you here. Okay, I see a glare jumping in first. Okay, because I'm going to do this the fast way. Okay, so, you know, um, unfortunately for me, um, I have a love-hate thing with Voltaire going so to preface this, I will say um, I translated Candide when I was an undergrad. I cited Voltaire like extensively in my master's thesis. I assigned Voltaire also. Um, he's one of those people who will say one thing and then completely contradict himself, you know, in a like in just one of these like crazy, like, you know, supposedly on 60 to 75 cups of coffee a day, which I find very hard to believe, you know, one of his like crazy little musings or whatever, though, that he's writing and everything. So um, I was one of the people who wrote um, 
uh, you had you can only change yourself. And it was because of the fact that the last time I assigned Voltaire, um, I was teaching a class and I was driving myself crazy with the answer, you know, the top answer, which is always speak up, always do something and everything like that. So I was kind of torn between those two answers. But then I went with, OK, well, for Voltaire's sake, I will go with you know, the last one, change yourself. Also, because of the fact that as a history teacher, I have to say, well, sometimes you are not going to fix the world. It's not going to happen. And so I don't know, that's kind of like what Voltaire, I think a lot of the time was doing. But you have to also remember, though, this is someone who let a lot of things, I mean, just kind of did, you know, things kind of just haphazardly a lot of the time, like a lot of these enlightenment people which the enlightenment is one of the banes of my existence anyway so okay sure. thank you aglaya thank you so much uh, we hear you okay lauren hi lauren i'm a boomer so i'm of that generation when the general comment was if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem and i saw so many changes you know i mean really our generation stopped the vietnam war a lot of blood loss, a lot of sacrifice by Americans. We Canadians did what we could by protesting at the American embassy. And our, our prime minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, let in a lot of American drafter sisters. Um, I see the changes in civil rights. It's not perfect, but there's changes. Changes for women, even in my own profession. When I started out in pharmacy, Mine um, was the first class that was 50-50. Classes before that weren't. Now it's majority women. Of course, salaries have gone down because of that. That's another story. So I, I think that, you know, we've gone beyond Voltaire. Yes, you have to fix yourself. You have to fix your own community. But I think it's our duty to um, come along to help the world. That's Great. it. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Yes, it's undeniable the, the levels of impact and progress that have occurred, um, and um, and and the responsibility that that generation often saw on many issues that has, uh, in some ways, been bolstered, in some ways, been lost by the next generations. Thank you. Yes, great point, Aglaia. I agree with that as well, of how the, the interconnectivity of the inner work and the social change work. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, that's kind of like the basis of what VBM is about is learning and growing ourselves and that always being interconnected with the kind of impact you want to have. My sense of Nous sommes cultivant notre jardin was that I need to cultivate that inner life in order to transform the outer world. It wasn't that I could only focus on me and only take care of me, my family, the people immediately around me, but to neglect my my inner growth, my spiritual growth, uh, where where I sit in this world, and how I relate to the world, is what I took from Voltaire. Whether he intended it or not, that was the message to me, mm. and I've continued to recite that final line in my own life. It's unfortunate that in many professions, um, there's not much reflection built into um, the pace of work. If you are a doctor running from patient to patient, 
if you are a CEO running from meeting to meeting, if you're a teacher running from class to class and grading, a, you know, grading to grading, um, that chance to reflect and um, refine oneself has to wait for vacation or a rare moment on a weekend or late at night. And I think that um, power, the, the idea that power corrupts, there's so much to that. Um, but the idea that um, many people in power or in prestigious positions often don't have the time to slow down the pace of what's happening and don't have the structure to slow down and do that work. Some of the greatest evils in the world are because we're not focused on what people are chatting about here. This tikkun midot, this repair of our, the Musar work, the work of repairing our character, um, reflecting each day on these traits. I mean, that's the real revolution the world needs more than anything of how each day are we going to cultivate humility and cultivate courage and cultivate gratitude and all these things that the world desperately needs. And, um, and so, yeah, thank you everyone who's weighing in on that. And um, that could be another way to understand cultivate your own garden. That sense that the garden is your internal life will have a lasting impact. The impact that can happen from everyone we engage with. Um, if we're not just flaring up with rage, if we're just not filled with uh, entitlement and resentment, if we're not just you know overflowing with negativity, the, the impact we get up on everyone we're interacting with in the grocery store, on the customer service line, in our family, in our apartment building or our neighborhood, it's just, it's just remarkable. Aglaia, did your hand go back up? Yeah, um, if anyone wants to listen to me talk again about Voltaire, okay. So one of the, okay, just to be a jerk about this whole thing, throw this out there also. All right, at different times in his life also, Voltaire praised Jewish women for breastfeeding their own babies, okay? And he also would say things like, well, Christians shouldn't even bother being Christians because Jesus was a Jew and he never gave up being a Jew. So you're kind of being a, okay, I'm not going to say that word, but an idiot by being a Christian in the first place because you really should be Jewish. And then the next thing he's saying anti-Semitic stuff. So that's one of the reasons why with Voltaire, you have to be very careful with him. And that's one of my things. He didn't intend probably for people to look at his life and say, okay, all right, Talleyrand kneeling before him is kind of like one of the dumbest stories I've ever heard. But the thing is, is that this guy probably did not intend for people to learn a lot from him as a screw up, but he actually made a lot of his point by being such a screw up. And it happens to a lot of famous people. It happened, probably happened to all of us after we're dead. But he did actually make his point by how much he screwed up, too. I have not been able to read everything in the chat. But if you wrote anything that you also want to articulate, feel free to do that. Um, and yeah, moving away from, yeah, and yeah, I, and I saw, I did see something somewhere about anti-Semitism, um, which is also another another piece of this. But moving away from the person, um the person of Voltaire into more of kind of how his ideas might relate to things that we want to cultivate today or reject today. Uh, be interested to hear where folks are on with that. Theories of social change, theories of tolerance, the limits of doubt. Yes, Gary. Yeah, good morning, everyone. I don't know if this relates to, to what we're talking about, but uh, it surely bothers me. And it uh, kind of relates a little bit to Voltaire about his isolationism and the whole idea of hope rather than action. Uh, I find it interesting in, in today's society 
especially with certain groups, the uh, evangelicals. Uh, I'm not picking on Christianity here, but national Christian uh, national Christian move, uh, Christianity movement, not only in this country but around the world. You know, this whole idea of missionizing the world uh, and into what they feel is the way to the way to live. But at the same time, we have these same groups that have isolated. Uh, themselves into not helping uh, and, uh, uh, the immigration and not helping with all this xenophobia and becoming very isolated in the world, uh, which is just the opposite of some of the basics of, of I, I don't like the word Judeo-Christian, but uh, definitely within Christianity. Uh, and, we're, and And then the other side of that is we're not going to take action. We're just going to hope and pray. So, I mean, that's a little bit of, of Voltaire, too. You can hope all you want, but action is what really, uh, really is what's most important. And, you know, I always was taught that the whole idea of Judaism is uh, not really having faith. But if you do it long enough, uh, you you may come to the reality that there is God or uh, but it's really the action that's that's most important. So that was my comment. Yeah, yeah Gary. Great. Um... So there's those who want to influence the world, perhaps in ways we don't like, such like proselytizing. But at least I hear Gary saying they actually care about having an influence in the world as opposed to those who just throw their hands up and just, um, you know, are not don't want to get involved at all, really, with people. And to be sure, in that proselytizing camp, I would not only put um, religious proselytizing, I would put political demagoguery. Those who really feel the way they're improving the world is just, you know, writing on Twitter all day, their political thoughts, you know, um, as if, uh, you know, I mean, is that really so different than someone who's proselytizing towards the religion? There's a sense that, OK, I care for the world. And the way I'm going to do that is trying to convince people of something. Um, is that really so different than a whole bunch of other ways that people just talk to persuade the world, um, you know, towards a right a right belief? Um and so, yeah, I, I, um, I think your point about action being central is really, is really key here. And yet, even as it relates to action, there's a lot of controversy around, you know, what is the most productive action. And yet, thankfully, there are some things that are still generally uh, agreed upon in American society as wholesome and valued by all some sort of general, you know, kind of volunteer activities where people can come together. And we're trying to cultivate those together, you know, here, um, all of us. So. So, yeah, thank you for that. And, um, you know, another way to frame that, go going back to universalism versus particularism, the early forms of universalism are not, hey, we, um, we should help all people in the world. It was really the proselytizing idea. I'm a, you know, Judaism was anti-universalist because it was anti-proselytizing. Islam and Christianity were universalistic because it, it saw proselytizing. Um, further, Christianity doesn't have a holy land. I mean, people talk about a holy land, but there's no central place. The whole world should be Christian in traditional Christianity, right? Whereas Judaism kind of um, has a very limited space where this stuff ought to be practiced in, in a space the size of New Jersey, you know? Um, and so there's very di big differences on that. And, and then universalism transformed into away from religious influence into kind of caring about people's bodies not just their souls ultimately and that's kind of an interesting shift we're seeing today so um yeah gary very uh very interesting thank you hi steve 
Um, thank you very, very much. I, I know my um, ongoing optimism is going to get in the way of people listening to me, but uh, that, that's what it is. I'm optimistic. And with that said, I don't believe people have a mandate to do good, to mend the world. Uh, in fact, who, who was the guest speaker a couple of weeks ago at six lectures about how to uh, bring Judaism up to date? Uh, oh, yeah, that, that, that was Rabbi Darren Kleinberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kept saying, wake up and do good. And my feeling was that that's, that, that, that's fine and nice, but I, I wish he would have said, wake up and don't do bad. Because I think doing good is innate and inherent, and I see it constantly, and I'm feeling it more and more. Just like Lauren said with her examples, that I do see change. I was in New York and Boston for about a month. And in the old days, I was a little bit reticent about going places, saying things. Uh, with all of the bad stuff going on in New York, and when I told my friends I'm going to stay in the middle of Times Square, oh, my God, no, you're going to get shot and your head's going to get cut off. Uh, it didn't happen. It was just the opposite. Everybody is so polite. I shouldn't say everybody. Uh, lots of people are more polite and generous with 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 uh, giving you seats on the subway. I did feel old when that happened, but what the heck? I like the seat. and. Um, I, I just don't think that the mandate is to do good. It is inherent, innate, and you can see it in babies. Uh, what I do think the mandate is, is to celebrate when good happens, to acknowledge it, to broadcast it, to raise it to a different level of observation. Good is happening. I want to announce it. And, and that's about all I have to say. Awesome, Steve. Yeah, that's that um, rule number one in ethics is do no harm. Um, we say in Tehillim and Psalms, uh, turn from evil and then do good. If we could only master the first, um, it's not hard to imagine people who make their riches um, through harming people um, and then are philanthropic. And is that is that is that is that the path to follow? Um, you know, do whatever it takes through harms, but then do ultimately do a good. Um, I sure hope not. And then there's an the opposite approach of someone who kind of is more focused on not doing harms. Maybe they don't go out and do X, Y, and Z good. But um, you know, if we if we weight up the balance, I mean, if 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 if, if we weight up both sides, in fact, some people might be motivated by guilt for kind of the wrongs done on a daily basis to go out and do good. If we just started with the, with the do no harm, when that is not easy in these days of being complicit, of being interconnected, of being uh, responsible for people. Um, it is, and, and in an era where it's so easy to offend, I don't know if it was always easy to, easy to offend or not, but it feels uh, easier and easier to offend. <laughs> Uh, sensitivities. We, we're very sensitive. In fact, there's a story I just heard recently about the founding of the Musar movement by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And he saw um, he there was a man who was a shoe, who worked in shoe repair. Very poor. He repaired shoes all day. And then someone in his family died and he inherited a bunch of money. And so he stopped his shoe repair work. 
A few years later, he walked into a public place and a man waved his shoes publicly in front of the crowd in front of this guy. We'll call him Muttle. He waved it in front of Muttle and saying, I need you to repair my shoes, kind of mocking him. Like, who do you think you are? Some rich guy now? You're, you're my shoe repair guy. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was standing there and he saw this and he saw Muttle's face turn red and then his face turned white. And then a few days later, Muttle died. Died from this. And so his students said, um, wow, you, you launched the Musar movement because of this? Um, because of this man who shamed him? But people are shaming each other all the time. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said, no, I didn't launch it because of the man that shamed Muttle. You're right. People are shaming each other all the time. I launched this because of Muttle's reaction, that there are people in the world because they are publicly shamed, that they can just crumble. People can crumble from being publicly shamed, that they don't have any inner sense of worth, right? Um, that they can be torn down so easily. And so I said, how do we build a new movement of building up ourselves in a way where praise doesn't affect us so much uh, and flattery? And cr criticism and rebuke doesn't, I mean, maybe rebuke, but criticism doesn't affect us so much um, that we are not just here responding to the crowd and, you know, of social media likes and of what people think of us and say about us and blah, 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 like, like we're back in high school, right? But rather that we have a deep sense of, of, of uh, internal value. And, um, and I think a big part of that internal value can come from a sense of reducing our wrongs, um, a sense that we're very conscious of what we're doing in the world. Um, so anyways, long answer. But Steve, thank you for provoking that. It's very interesting. Okay, Ethan, hey. Rabbi, um, you know, I think everyone in this room, metaphorically, is constantly thinking about the best way to impact the world around us. Um, and I thought it was beautiful that you started today's class with that question. Um, and in many ways, I think that the best thing that comes from these classes is having a space to think about uh, both the ways that we can impact the world around us and ways in which that we can inspire the people, communities around us to impact the world around us. Um, and one thing that I have been thinking about through this conversation um, is that Voltaire sort of poses this question of how do you commit your life to changing the world around you for the better? Like what is the best way to go about that, uh, that, that, drive to make the world around you better. Um, and I, I want to suggest that there are folks out there who may not necessarily commit their lives to working for a nonprofit um, or you know serving uh, every single day in a way that um, is we deem as sort of uh, selfless. That there are folks who are out there who take part in for-profit businesses that provide services to folks um, 
that when we think about it, that those services have value to the world around us. And that's why, uh, you know, take, take, for example, an apartment building that's putting roofs over folks' head. Um, and I want to suggest that maybe if we, as a group, as a room, uh, if we can help people out there view their roles in society as just what they're doing as having a positive impact in the world, that they have the opportunity to make a difference just by changing the perspective about not simply just making as much money as they possibly can, but, but that the service that they are providing to the world is inherently good, that it provides value. Um, that that in and of itself can sort of raise our collective consciousness as a society to be more intentional about creating a wholer, more just, equitable world. Um, so I don't know if there's a question in there, but I, I think that um, that is something that I am personally taking away from a class like today of how we can take the lessons, uh, the comments from this class and sort of uh, put it back into into the world. So. Yeah, love that, love that. And just by people reframing um, who they are and what they're doing in the world and shift where, whatever job they find themselves in, whatever place they find themselves in, shifting that orientation to not just checking the box, but actually adding value um, and, and, and thinking about others in that process. Wow, uh, that, that would be huge. And um, those opportunities are all around us. You know, and sometimes we make things too complicated around this. You know, I'll read you this quote. I just put it in the chat. It's a well-known idea, but maybe you, have, maybe you haven't seen it. When the novelist, when the novelist Aldous Huxley was nearing death, he said, it's a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end of life that one has no more to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. Um. Indeed, we can be perplexed by the greatest challenges all our days. And then um, at the end, realize, my gosh, was all this really about was trying to just put more kindness into the world each day? Is that all we were trying to figure out here? Every Torah reading we heard, every half Torah, every book we read and novel and every movie we saw. And yet, yeah, obviously, there's more to life than just summed up into one phrase. But if we were to try to have to say, what's the purpose of us being here, right? What could we ultimately get it to? Yeah, Gary, I saw your hand go back up. Just a quick statement uh, regarding what Steve said and, and what Ethan uh, just said. Uh, and relating it to your, your poll question, where 67% we should fight every injustice and what, what have you. Just being kind. And it goes back to your kindness class. Uh, 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 opening the door for somebody. Saying thank you, saying good morning, trying to get a smile on somebody's face because we don't always, and that is everybody doesn't always have the time. Uh, letting somebody in into traffic that's trying to get in. There's so many simple things that we can do on a day to day basis that I think can help fight injustices. It may not be the big picture. We don't have to always do gigantic things, but on a day to day basis, we can improve the relationships with one another. Which then, you know, the old saying, pay it forward. Uh, and, and if it gives somebody an idea to to do the next step, uh, I think, as you mentioned, you know, buying somebody a cup of coffee, you know, uh, so uh, so that all plays into, uh, I think, what we're somewhat talk, talking here. Uh, and I think I think is we don't have to you don't have to, you know, take a day off from work to feed the homeless 
though that's nice, not everybody has that ability uh, or, or have the input to want to want to do that. So that's my yeah, comment. Gary. Thank you, and that that's an important point there. That there are so many different ways to have a positive impact. Sometimes we think uh, there's only a few people who can do it based on the kind of job they have or whatever, but there are just so many ways each of us can can be on the side of good. So yeah, thank you for that. And to be sure, I do think that um, intellectuals have their place, um, you know, and polemics has its place. And Voltaire, you know, made a contribution. Um, yeah, Voltaire might not have been the guy at the soup kitchen, like you know, <laughs> you know, um, but like. For him to be able to challenge societal evils he thought were bad, like, yeah, if someone only is kind of a public critic, um, most of those are going to be low level enough that it's not going to have the impact they want. It's going to just kind of foster tensions. But um, there are those who um, are really needed uh, in that role. And in fact, the Torah values that every king was given a prophet to critique them. Every king has a prophet trailing them, right? And um, saying like, hey, what are you doing with your power? You know, if you read the Tanakh, you'll see that. And that's a pretty amazing thing to, you know, to be a, you know, to be a prophet and put your life, uh, you know, um, at risk for such things like that, as Voltaire certainly did. So, yeah. So, Gary, uh, that's great. Thank you. Hey, Rabbi. I'm also thinking about um, what's coming up into mind is to be wary of being overly critical of negativity and um, being like hyper justice and and faulting and never seeing that there's good in everything. Um, what comes to mind to me right now is like the current uh, fight to like bring down capitalism and stuff, which in 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 ads and certain points I, I I agree with the destruction that capitalism does on on folks. But uh, I think that folks sometimes fail to understand that because of capitalism, philanthropy is funding their own initiatives because of um, capitalism. Like there's good that's coming into it. So I'm, I'm holding deep, like sometimes being overly critical stops you from seeing like the positive shining light that I think that is also important. Um, as I see a lot of like nonprofits that are social justice based um, are fighting to bring down philanthropy, but it would also stop them from continuing to do good work and in, in, in the in the world, you know? So I think sometimes we need to stop and take a breath um, and like Voltaire kind of just stop and pause of, of maybe being that over critic and maybe go into a soup kitchen, maybe see what the funding that's, mm. uh, providing the soup kitchen for it to continue to flow. Right. Eddie, what, what, what a great point. Um, yeah. To think about how do we responsible offer uh, responsibly offer criticism and our polemics and you offer the example of capitalism. I'm sure we can all think of so many more. Another good one would be like fighting the patriarchy, right? Of course we should fight the patriarchy. Of course we should fight the idea of male dominance and of toxic masculinity. And yet like, I think that we don't want to destroy the spirit of boys and men in the country. We see kind of men and boys retreating in some spaces. We want to empower positive masculinity, you know, in a sense, or other, you know, and, and um, boys are, are losing groups where they can share and be emotional and be vulnerable. How do we rebuild that sense? And, or take the other case, like people who don't like Israeli policies and then just go too far and actually become anti-Semites, you know, fighting to destroy the state of Israel, as opposed to, um, actually trying to break down the policies that they that they see as harmful. And it goes on and on. It goes on and on, um, you know, in terms of 
things that we might view evil and want to criticize and yet fail to see the the good side or the other side as well. And that feels like a great contribution of what Judaism can bring to social change work of being robustly um, active in this and yet, um, to, you know, offering those criticisms responsibly. You know, another case that comes to mind for me is what it means in the name of democracy to like go take out a tyrant. I mean, how many times did we see this taking out a tyrant in Arab Spring or go back to 1979 Iranian revolution and a much worse alternative coming to place? Like, oh, in the name of good, we're going to go on a holy war against this, you know, undemocratic leader. And then once they've been uprooted without any kind of groundwork social change happening, um, you get something much more dangerous, like we see with Iran today. And so, um, you know, you might say the same thing with Trumpism as a response to kind of earlier, overly aggressive anti-Republican attempts and kind of what that produced. So, um, yeah. Wow. Said a lot there. Okay. Let me pause. Glay, is that an old hand or a new hand? New hand. Okay. okay. Anyone else want to talk before me so you can shut me up? No, nobody jumped in. So go for it. Okay. All right. So just to confirm what Eddie said, like just to bring it back to Voltaire and confirm what Eddie was like talking about though. Okay. As much as Voltaire could not stand, absolutely could not stand the Catholic church. Okay. Um, one of the things um, that you end up noticing about Voltaire is how influenced he was by, especially Jesuits. Okay, like how like intensely influenced he was by them. So it's, you know, I don't know, you can take that in any different direction. Remember, also, this is the guy who changes his mind, like, you know, a flip of a coin. But the thing is, is that could he be influenced by ideas from people that he couldn't stand? Well, you can be. And well, also think about it this way with we've been talking about Voltaire. Um, I don't think anybody in here actually likes him, but we are influenced by his ideas, whether we like it or not, to be honest, because, I mean, look at how much influence he did have. He does have a lot of influence on not our, just our lives as Jews, but also as, um, you know, just as Westerners in general. Yeah. Aglaia, thank you. Yeah, that's that's um, that's really great. You know, and, and picking up, you know, continuing on this thread, I think um, I think the critique of religion oftentimes go to goes to extreme as well. Right. There's lots of things to critique of religion, but religion gives people enormous amounts of meaning and enormous resiliency in the face of suffering. Um, and people, who I think, do, do a great disservice by trying to destroy religion. Um, and I understand why people feel threatened by it or put upon by it. And then to go to, to denomination, the number of non-Orthodox people I know who just hate Orthodoxy and Judaism would be so impoverished without Orthodoxy and the opposite. The number of Orthodox people I know who just hate non-Orthodoxy and Judaism would be so impoverished if, if Orthodoxy was the only option, you know, and that sense of like trying to break something down so deeply, not realizing how many people are getting meaning from it, you know, and, and finding resiliency there. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate you going in that direction. Hi, Lauren. Question. How do we effectively criticize the current Israeli government without it turning into an anti-Israel stance. I love the country. It breaks my heart where it's going. How do we get that balance? Okay, I, um, that is a great question. I, of course, don't have the answer, but I'll share a few thoughts. I'm curious if, if others want to jump in as well. And if Lauren, I mean, I know you have your own thoughts as well, I mean, because you care a lot about this. Um, and I appreciate the question. I think, as usual, to follow the, the path of Hillel, why he's chosen over Shammai, 
is to quote the other side first and to actually give some charitable explanation for the other side. It's not like the far-right coalition is just purely evil, wicked people, right? I know some people think that. But to start with, huh, what are they fighting for and why, right? What traumas are they driven by from Palestinian terrorism? What traumas are they um, fueled by, by the Holocaust and Jewish trauma? What, what are they triggered by with the failure of the Jewish left in Israel, the Jewish left, which has basically evaporated um, and past attempts at peace deals, right? Contextualizing why they're doing what they're doing um, and the level of desperation they think they've, that, uh, that we've reached. That, that's, and then going further, going into the judicial um, reform, those who have studied it closely know um, there is definitely merit to the notion of judicial reform in Israel. If you took up 50 issues that could be reformed, I bet all of us would agree with some of them having base, uh, you know, being legitimate. You know, if, when we just get into a binary of destroying the judicial branch versus preserving democracy, it feels evil what they're doing. But when you actually look at it and they're both fighting for democracy, actually, there's a few things about judicial reform which which has mer- have merit. So I would start there. What? Why are they doing what they're doing? What is charitable in what they're doing? And then we can get to, okay, now why is judicial overhaul so dangerous and anti-democratic? And why is this far right one of the greatest threats to Israel and to world Jewry? And then, then contextualizing why our battle against that is there to preserve the whole. We're there to preserve the whole, not to destroy the whole. Right? How would an anti-Semite do it? They would only demonize these people. They would only show the bad of it. And they would do it recklessly to the point that it hurts all Jews and the state of Israel, not just attack um, these particular policies in place. This requires enormous nuance. And it's the same with, with American and, you know, I mean, obviously Canadian politics are so different than both of those. But um, the American political scene of those who have really just living in a binary, there's just good and evil. And they, when new things are introduced, it's just viewed as just like pure evil that we have to fight, not as having any merit as to what's um, ultimately being articulated on the other side. But it's really hard to be a change maker and be an activist and be a public, um, offer public criticism and ha- do that with nuance. But the world is craving that. The world is craving change makers who can find the good, a little bit of good in, in the evil they're fighting who can find a little bit of good in the people they're trying to dismantle, you know, because, um, um, and I think that those are the people we want to win out ultimately. So anyways, um, friends, it was great to be with you today and explore some of these really rich topics. As you can see here with Voltaire, we're getting into a whole new era of modernity, even though he's so early. And from Voltaire, we're gonna go all the way to Hume. And David Hume is a fascinating figure um, we're going to move, you know, into the realm of emotion as it relates to cognition and um, get into some deep insights about the human condition. And as always, our, uh, we, you know, we don't really care about who David Hume was. I mean, we're interested, but we don't, nobody knows, right? We're really interested in how do these ideas provoke our own growth, right? Uh, right? We're not just scholars of David Hume and what he ate for breakfast when he was 17. Who cares? I mean, there's people who write books on things like that, right? But we're interested in like, how does, how do these ideas that were introduced help us to live more rich and meaningful lives? 
and pay it forward more deeply. I hope something from Voltaire provokes that for us today, whether we liked him or disliked him, um, that we can think about how we're going to, you know, create have our own theory of change. What's my theory of change and how am I going to live it in the world? Is it small? Is it large? How am I going to try to be consistent within that? Have a wonderful day. God bless.